Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Stephen Shukaitis about his new book, The Composition of Movements to Come, Aesthetics and Cultural Labour After the Avant-Garde, which is published by Roman and Littlefield. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Stephen Shukaitis uh, from Essex University about his new book, The Composition of Movements to Come, Aesthetics and Cultural Labour After the Avant-Garde. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Dave. Um, this is, is a, a fascinating and, and rich book and, and very actually very timely as well, um, given the kind of politics we're seeing uh, in the US, the UK, uh, and, and actually much more, more globally as well. And I wonder if we could start off um, just by kind of introducing the context of the book. So I wonder if you could kind of tell me about... Um, the sort of work you're you're doing at Essex, and particularly the kind of I guess sort of like uh, political starting point for your work. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Well, what I tend to write books, they tend there tend to be three or four different things going on at the same time. Like there's probably a, there's like a, a conceptual story. There's like a, a story coming out of political order saying that there's a there's something coming out of art, and there's different layers coming together. But sort of what this book comes out of is, um, I guess you'd say certain experiences in the anti-globalization movement in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, where there was a real focus on what was called sort of the idea of diversity of tactics, or the idea that you have sort of network forms of organization that didn't have top-down leadership, um, and that didn't have like forms of centralized coordination. And this is something that, you know, we saw, we saw a lot as well with um, the Occupy movements and, and, and things like that. And what I thought was interesting was the ways that it was sort of considered very taboo to talk about things like strategy um, because that seemed to come with come with it a whole baggage of sort of top-down concepts and centralized control. So what I wanted to think about was something like, are there ways to think about political strategizing that don't operate in that sort of top-down fashion? And could, you, could, could forms of, let's say, radical art production be ways that political movements like reorient themselves and think collectively through questions of strategy. Um, so that's what I wanted to do is sort of look at forms of avant-garde art production using mainly sort of forms of Marxist theory to try to understand this conjunction or possible conjunction of art production, social movements, um, aesthetics and strategy. That, that actually sets up a really good question uh, about the book, which is the kind of like theoretical um, position. And, and I guess the kind of like, the core part of Marxist theory that, that you're drawing from. Um, so we can crystallize this around the question of kind of what is autonomism? Um, and yeah, what's the connection between that and art? Autonomism is perhaps generally known, or autonomous Marxism is generally known in the English-speaking world, mainly through the works of people like Antonio Negri, Paolo Vierno, Franco Berardi, and things like, like that. Um, I'm drawing from them a lot, but also from, you might say, um, 
what I was jokingly referring to for a while as, as Brooklyn autonomia. <laughs> so, so certain people like Sylvia Federici, George Cofensis, the Midnight Notes group, um, Harry Cleaver, who ended up in Brooklyn in, 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 in the, in the, in the mid-70s, um, trying to draw on certain ideas and practices coming out of the radical politics of Italy during the time, but also bringing them together with questions coming out of the wages for housework movement, social, social feminist politics, and also sort of more, let's say, um, uh, post-colonial, decolonial politics. Um, so that's what I would generally think of as a, a, a autonomism as being a kind of, of Marxism that is, let's say, uh, I don't want to split hairs here, but, but sort of a, a non-state Marxism that is tries to find how class relations are constantly composed and recomposed through how, through how um, labor antagonism is sort of dealt with, um, how, how it's mediated. Um, and, and one that I find more interesting because it's not so, let's say, dogmatic or so programmatic. Now, in terms of how that relates to art, um, the, the obvious answer was, well, usually not very much at all. I mean, it's a form of Marxist politics and, and, and analysis that comes out of first industrial labor struggles and, and, and focus on labor. Um, and thus, at least at first, doesn't really even talk about art per se. I mean, w once Negri starts talking about socialized labor and forms of communicative labor starting in the 70s, you could start seeing how that could overset with, with art practices. Um, but it's it's not really been a major point of overlap between you know, um, on that kind of political analysis and the art world. Although there are moments here and there where you could see artists who have worked with political figures, or you could see how these two things have come together, but it's not been a, a major thing. So I was trying to sort of see well, what would happen if we use this school of thought to look at, you know, certain art practices. Um, I think it was worked relatively well. And it's funny you mentioned kind of, certain art practices because you've got a very um a very kind of eclectic uh, approach actually to the to the range of different um types of artistic and, and cultural expressions um across the book which i think is one of one of the book's strengths um one one thing you're particularly interested in though is this idea about the kind of the avant-garde in the book and i wonder actually could could you kind of could you sum up that as well? Because uh, as you say early on, it's a, it's a sort of a slippery term, isn't it? Mm. Well, one thing that's funny is that because, well, because I, I work in a business school, I'm allowed to sort of, or I, I allow myself to sort of take certain risk concepts that would, let's say, be a lot more, um, you know, a lot more for faux pas if I was a proper art historian. So, for instance, if you look at more, most art historical research, it tends to sort of, you know, end the idea of the avant-garde around the mid-60s. So to talk about the avant-garde state would be kind of a, of a big no-no, because it's like, well, isn't that over? Um, I, I, I'm interested in the avant-garde in almost a kind of sense that, the, that, that of how, like, Ron Sierra talks about the distribution of the sensible. So I'm interested in avant-garde is not as, let's say, the leading edge of the sort of, you know, of the best political art, which is going to somehow miraculously lead the struggle. Um, I'm more interested in sort of forms of aesthetic cultural production that disrupt and transform what is sayable in a current situation. So that's sort of my my particular um, I'm, I'm take on the avant-garde, and that's be, and that's for two reasons. One is this this book is prim, primarily historical in the sense that it's looking at things coming out of mainly the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, but it's looking at them in a way 
that's trying to figure out how their approach to their present, to the context they were operating in, could be useful for thinking about aesthetics and politics today. Um, so in a certain sense, uh, I'm using the idea of the avant-garde more as a sort of, as a conceptual category than necessarily as sort of, you know, as, as a, as a so- sociological one. The, um, I guess the first kind of example um, draws us back actually to that kind of more traditional art historical moments. And this is the Situationist International. So I, could, I wonder, could you tell me how, how they're important to the book um, and how they might be kind of read as, as an unorthodox form of strategy? Yeah, uh, well, one thing I find interesting with, about the situation is well, few, well, few things. One is you find that there's certain, let's say, groups of theorists or artists or ideas who tend to constantly get recirculated and reused. So, for instance, when we look at the SI, you know, you have basically a, a sort of strange conjunction of a kind of a kind of Hegelian Marxism with a kind of uh, you know radical aesthetics inspired by Dada and surrealism. Um, with a combination of, of a, let's say, a focus on sort of um, media politics and communication. And a lot of the ways that the SI t- tends to get talked about tend to reduce them to one aspect or another. So you can have, let's say, the, the way that they talk about where they become a p- part of the artwork proper. And, and, if, and you look at them in art historical terms. Or if you have the SI where they become, you know, like, uh, how were they were part of a certain h- h- history of Marxist thought. What I'm interested in is... And the way I approached it, which is maybe, you know, I'm not saying this is, this is the way to approach them, is when you look at sort of, particularly some of Gita Board's later writings, it's really interesting how he was also very influenced by, by von Clausewitz, by sort of classical military strategy. So I wanted to think, start thinking about, like, how we could look at the various kinds of practices that they were, under, un, you know, undertaking as forms of trying to um, uh, collectively strategize. So to give, give you an example, let's say the the traditional Marxist conception of the party is that um, okay, the, the working class can only reach trade union consciousness, therefore it, it is the job of the party to come in and bring consciousness to people, right? I mean, that, um, I'm being simplistic here, but that, let's say that, that's the general idea. What the SI is supposed to do is they say, we don't want to lead here. We want to, I think they use the phrase, we want to initiate the explosion and then sort of to disappear, so they want to create conditions of emergence, which a sort of collective subject will will, will, will will emerge, and then begin to strategize for itself. So, so things like let's say interrupting everyday life with sort of um, street theater, or trying to create occupies, situations of occupation of buildings, are are not because as I think it's it's going to correctly like you know lead political struggle in a, in a, in a certain direction, but rather it will create a situation out of which a different kind of collectivity will emerge that will, will strategize for itself. I wonder if you could kind of develop that with the, the concept of psychogeography, partially because it's um, it's a kind of well-known idea that comes from the situationist, but also it provides a useful bridge into thinking about um, how these kind of strategies take place in the urban context, which is, is one of the kind of bigger themes the book uh, develops. Yeah. Um, well, well, um, 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 so when, when, when the SI is starting in the late fifties or early sixties, um, um, Paris, like many many places in Europe and many places in the world, is undergoing a huge shift as sort of the growth of cities, this sort of you know um, 
the transformations in the economy, um, rising consumer culture. And so psychogeography emerges as, as trying to find a different way to encounter and relate to the urban fabric. Now, if you want to, you know, um, one way of rendering it is sort of you, sort of an aimless drifting. We just sort of, you know, casually explore, explore the city and see how it affects you. The way I was approaching, approaching um, psychogeography is more of, of almost a sort of quasi-militaristic sort of surveying of the terrain of, city, of, of cities to see what, what forms of power are operating here, what forms of, of social conflict are, are possible within them. And it's almost, try, you know, it's, the, there's a certain reading you can get out of, particularly out, out of Du Bois' writing on psychogeography, where he's trying to use psychogeography as a way to anticipate how, let's say, uh, future conflicts in the city will, will take place based upon the way it's operating. Um, so that, that's how I, I would tend, tend to think about it, is, is, is it starts as an artistic method to explore the city differently with an idea of gaining a different relation to it that will be, be useful in future political conflicts. Yeah, and, and I guess you can see where um, the kind of I suppose, kind of military strategy, the game of war, these kind of ideas um, tie in quite, quite neatly and quite, quite usefully to that. Um, it's actually funny that, that, that there isn't more of a discussion of relationship between, you know, um, um, artistic avant-garde and, and military theory, given that the avant-garde is directly out of military theory, right? Um, and, and I think it's one of the interesting things is... When I talk about military theory, I don't, I don't want to make you know Du Bois seem like too serious and too icy because there is a certain degree of humor in the way he uses these ideas, and a certain degree of, of playfulness in them. Um, it's also interesting. I, I really like, like, like the idea that the uh, that the SI was particularly conscious of the idea that that they were going to intervene, but the goal of an artistic avant-garde is to make it to have its day in the sun and then to disappear. So, for instance, when people talk about the SI, they often say, like, oh, yeah, that was good, but they were only around for a little bit and then they were gone. Sometimes if an idea circulates, it becomes, let's say, effective within a social milieu, you no longer need the organization to exist. So sometimes it's temporary and it's not a problem, but it's actually kind of a solution. I mean, this this actually is, is something that I suppose casts casts light on the, the idea of the avant-garde itself and maybe, you know, why... Um, why traditionally it does kind of seem to, to finish in, in late 60s or early 70s in art history and, and, and again you know a way of kind of resuscitating it or kind of you know redeveloping it for uh, for the contemporary age which is quite quite an interesting I suppose strategy of the, of the book in itself. Well I, I, th- I think in particular why discussions of the avant-garde tend to shift or change or seem to end around that point is you also have, have broader shifts in the workings of, cult, uh, of, of the cultural world and, and the economy, we start to have the rise of what we now call post-Fordism or the creative economy, and certain things which could seem to be, let's say, purely antagonistic at one point, now become like, oh, you're, you know, so let's say that, you know, the SIs take on on, on, on the tournament or sort of their engagement with the city would seem to be antagonistic at a certain point. Like 20 years later, you could say, oh, they're just doing viral marketing. So there's a, certain shift, there's a certain way in which the kinds of practices that had a certain resonance at that time almost have their meaning changed by how the context around them changes. I mean, it's funny, actually, because that brings us really um, quite neatly into this question about kind of work 
labour, artistic production. And again, I, I mean, you, you sort of, partially because of uh, the influence of autonomous theory, uh, which is deeply engaged with this question, but also um, in other ways throughout the book, you know, you, you, you kind of um, uh, are in dialogue with ideas about work, labour, things like value. Um, and in some, you know, some respects, this kind of manifests itself as discussions of the idea of the city as a factory or the metropolitan factory, um, questions about kind of artistic surplus value, um, you know, the kind of production of value through art, and then um, feminist readings of, of the refusal of work. And I wonder if we might pick up on two of those things, partially because they're um, kind of important in, in contemporary um, discussion. So the first thing is this kind of value question um, and, you know, kind of how the autonomists read um, value production by and, and, and through art. Um, it, it, it's one of those things where, where again, the, the, you know, you know it, I, I wouldn't say that there's like a, a thorough sort of field of literature on autonomous readings of, of value in art. Um, the little things that are, are out there are things like uh, this little book that, 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 that Tony Negri wrote, which is supposed to be a series of, of, of letters he wrote during the 1980s to people about, about art practices. I'm kind of I kind of doubt whether they actually were letters, but but anyways, yeah. Um, so the way I was approaching it is is trying to think about how do forms of art production, cultural production, specifically create create value. So in the sense that if let's say you're 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 coming from a uh, one approach would be a, a sort of a let's say a very orthodox Marxist sort of labor theory value um, I'm reading with this, where, where, where only certain forms of labor produce value and everything else doesn't. Um, you'd, be, you'd be hard pressed to explain why, let's say, a certain Picasso um, um, painting is worth so much. Is it because it took him so many hours? No, that would be silly. Um, and if you're only looking at sort of values created by, by market exchange, uh, which is, let's say, kind of a post taken with someone like, like Georg Simmel, I think they also you come up with certain limitations. So what I was trying to understand is, let's say, how there's a forms of what I call circulatory labor. So uh, labors that, that sort of help to circulate images, ideas, perceptions, um, move things around within, within the social milieu. And that has its own particular form of, 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 of value production. So if you go back to the question of sort of why are certain artists' work worth so much, you can say, oh, well, actually, it's because of the labors undertaken by curators, by, by, by people who run museums, who do exhibitions, who all sort of build up kinds of, of, of perceptions of, of worth, or you might, in more traditional business terms, you might say, who build intangible value around the particular practices. Um, so in a certain way, you can, once you say that, you can see how how the divide line between conceptual art practices and, and, and sort of marketing and branding starts to get a bit sort of, you know, hazy, right? And where does, um, I guess, where, where does this connect us back to, to strategies? Um, well, in the sense that um, coming out of a sort of autonomous reading where when the when the Thomas talk about sort of class composition, they mean two things. One, there's a certain okay, technical composition is sort of how how labor and value production exist in a certain context. So, what kinds of work are happening? How are they operating from, for capital? Those sorts of things. Um, and the second is sort of political composition, which is sort of what kinds of political possibilities 
subjective becomings, kinds of antagonism are possible in that situation. And what I find most interesting is, is how these two are inherently collected. Okay, so I connect it. So for instance, you might say the industrial factory system produces value and disciplines labor in a certain way, but, but, but enables a certain kind of resistance or, resistance or rebellion in it. So in, in, in the factory line, you can stop the factory line by doing this, this, or this. Once you have value being produced by much more sort of circulatory ephemeral means that aren't centrally controlled, you would need a different set of techniques, a different set of set of approaches to interrupt the to interrupt that value production. So it's almost starting from the idea that you need to understand um, how 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 capitalism is working in its current in current in its current state in order to try to interrupt it. I mean, what 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 are the kind of classic? Uh, I, I like that word actually. In, interruptions um, is this concept of the refusal of work, which, which is obviously kind of well uh, well established in autonomous ideas. But I think what, one of the really kind of important things you do in the book, and actually one of the most sort of positive contributions, is you you, you kind of highlight how feminist theory is important to understanding the refusal of work. Hmm. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you liked that bit. Um, um, I mean, that comes out of, out of a few things. One is I remember reading this article by Alyssa Del Rey, where one of the things she pointed out is this sort of if 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 work refusal attempting to escape work is only hap- is only being done by by sort of you know by well this which you're right, she's saying done by, by, by male factory workers that means that all the labors of social reproduction of, of child care of of sort of everyday interactions that sustain you know sociality that, that that a certain kind of limit refusal work to only certain workers would tend to actually just push work off to primarily you know, historically, what is more um, um, activity done by, by women? So she's saying, well, this is a certain limitation and a certain problem, which I um, tend to agree with a lot. So I was trying to sort of draw from from that insight, as well as um, uh, Kathy Weeks's book, um, "The Problem with Work," which also sort of brings together um, fe- um, feminist theory and, and work refusal, and things like um, like uh, the wages for housework movement. I mean, one of the critiques that was made of wages for housework often is, well, if you succeed, if you manage to get housework paid for, you're just going to be further alienating and commodifying your own labor. And someone looks like Sylvia Federici's response to is, no, you misunderstood the point here. The point here is that currently these forms of what we consider, you know, to be work, like housework, care work, um, are being invisibilized and not acknowledged. The point of, of the wage housing movement was to give a visibility to form of labor to be able to struggle over and refuse it. Um, so I guess that's what I'm, what I'm, why I'm in, in bringing, or sort of, let's say, continuing to develop that, that idea is how refusal, you know, work refusal, you can't just magically escape from work by yourself or even, even you know, as, as a movement. You need to think about sort of how forms of social reproduction, caring work, all the other forms of work, which which oftentimes are are, are forgotten about, have to be thought of. And almost almost one, one, at one point, I'm saying you need to socialize work in order, in order to refuse it. So we've talked kind of uh, through autonomous theory, through ideas about how capitalism is operating, um, particular ideas about strategies, about um, as we've just done the. The refusal of work and understanding the kind of socialized um, approach to contemporary work. 
But we haven't really talked about art. So I wonder if we could pick up um, on the kind of, I guess, almost the kind of core case study that the book um, uses, which is um, the story of, of NSK. And, and I think I, I might let you give the, uh, the kind of the full uh, proper pronunciation um, of them. But I wonder if you could tell me the story of NSK um, and, and through that kind of telling, um, bring out some of the, the broader themes in the book. Well, I'm not necessarily sure I, I, I would say the NSK is necessarily the core, um, I, 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 but I, I do think they have a particular approach to the questions of art, art and politics, which made me want to include them. So, for instance, one thing that I find interesting, about, um, um, so, and my German is horrible, so I'm probably going to butcher this as well, Neust um, Kunst. One of, okay, so, the, one of the things they do is they're most interested in, let's say, how previous, how let's say the recuperation of or the sort of the assimilation of previous avant-garde's um, tended to sort of come with a certain kinds of, of trauma or sort of discomfort in them. So think of you can think about the ways of that, let's say uh, constructivism, uh, Russian constructivism in the twenties and thirties got sort of crushed by Stalinism. So certain kinds of art practices sort of got buried um, and, and and sort of. Um, or dealt, dealt away with. And with, what they're trying to trace out is what they call the retro avant-garde. So what kinds of lingering, let's say, energies, emotional attachments, anxieties, forms of, um, um, are attached to, to these histories. So to give you um, a nice example, um, they're, they're best known for their musical wing, which is a band called Leibach. And, and, and um, they, uh, one of the things that they do is... Um, they do, uh, well, I, won't, I won't say cover versions of songs, but let's say rework songs in other ways. So um, do you know the, the Queen song, One Vision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So here you have this sort of 80s kind of, kind of happy, almost synth-poppy song about how, and this is written during Live Aid in 86, that you know, people will come together and, and, and change the world for the better. But the funny thing is that that's how it sounds when Queen plays it. Um, when you change the, the, the lyrics of, that, of, the, of the course of the song, one vision, one people, one solution, into German, and you give it a nice military beat in the background, all of a sudden it becomes much more ominous, you know? So, so what, what are they doing by, 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 by reinterpreting this song along a certain way is, let's say, showing how even in apparently, you know, consumer world friendly pop culture, there are elements of, let's say, fascist desire and, 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 and sort of, let's say, other kinds of unseemliness that are existing. So what they do is they, is the NSK tries is, is to it like recombine forms of ideas from, from, from Dada, surrealism, um, futurism, with a sort of weird mix of sort of quasi-fascist imagery in a way that tries to sort of tease out what kinds of anxieties and traumas are still embedded in, 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 in these histories. Um, and that's why I think it's, it's quite interesting in that they aren't necessarily, it's not the avant-garde is, here is, the, here is the new thing that will change everything. It's like, well, here's how the operations of previous artistic practices, whether in surrealism or futurism um, or, or in fascist art, are continuing to have an influence on art production today. And so that's why they call it these sort of retro avant-garde. They're trying to sort of trace out more of these histories in a way that sort of reactivates or uses those energies in the, in, in, in the present. I, I'm quite interested in, 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 and actually this is something that um, 
maybe really, you know it isn't in isn't really actually in the book but but just how, how did you come across uh, or how did you become kind of interested um in, in nsk um i i was i was certainly um i i, I was um uh vague, you know aware of of of, of live back as, 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 as a teenager growing up listening to the music and, and also some of the of, of of the painting um of of the, the sort of let's say the fight art wing of NSK, which is uh, Irwin. Um, but one thing that particular happened is, I'm going to get wrong exact year, but in 2007, okay, so uh, one of the projects that the NSK has is in the early 90s, they launched their own, um, what they claim to be a global state in time. Yeah. So so it, as as Yugoslavia was sort of, sort of falling apart, um, th- they declared that they were going to create their own state that had, no, no, no spatial borders, but only only time, and so they created this. You know, they started making passports. They started claiming that they were creating their own state, uh, and that was you know an interesting sort of gesture. And and one one thing one chapter looks at is that the state and time. But in two thousand seven, I, I received a message saying that um, they're rethinking the state and time project, and we're going to have a a, a global congress um, about it in Berlin. So I applied to be a, a, a congressman at the sort of at this at this conceptual art practice of being a state with all time and no and no territory, and so I went along to that and, and sort of got interested in how what they were doing could be understood in terms of in terms of you know histories of art practices and, and how that worked. So that this is that, that's what got me. M- Let's say moving from just being casually interested in the NSK in terms of the art they produced to being more interested in how they were organizing. The the organizing thing is um, is fascinating actually, and, and I mean you, you kind of address it in the uh, in the conclusion as well as actually bringing in um, more questions um, questions about art. So so I guess um, I might bring in a, a practical and then this more kind of. Um, art theoretical question so in, in practical terms you talk about the kind of like uh, i might summarize it almost as kind of strategy without strategy um and and you discuss um your your conversation with uh, is it um conrad uh, becker i think you know um and you kind of talk through um strategy without strategy so i guess what would be the kind of um i suppose the practical implications of, of this strategy without strategy I guess it would be in a certain way, and, and this is like this is one of the main themes of, 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 of the book is that when a lot of times when people go and get said about learning about let's say the situationists or about Leibach and NSK or about the art strike, you can it's very easy to fall into this idea of like okay they did this this and this it worked therefore if we do that today it will work it'll have the same effect. You know, if there was a if there was a, uh, a, a, um, a form of art interventionist art practice that was really disruptive and, and powerful in the sixties, well, then it'll be good today. And part of what I'm saying is, well, actually, no. That's the most useful thing to learn, and in maybe this is an art historical question or a political question, is not necessarily what do they do and how do we redo it today, but more how do particular practices interact with the context that they come out of. And so it's more of learning about this relationship between political aesthetic practices and context that I think is more useful today 
And so to think about, let's say, an inheritance of interventionist art practices would, would be to sort of say, okay, well, here are these things that happen. Here's how they circulate it. What can we learn from that today? And, and how can they be sort of not reused, but almost like necessarily repurposed or, or redesigned? Because I guess I would say any, any, any artistic or, or, or political practice which claims it is politically radical is only so in the context in which it emerges. And to sort of learn from that history and inheritance means having to rethink what that relationship was so it can be rethought for the present. Uh, the art of the undercommons, yes. <laughs> an unanswerable question. Well, I, I would think of the art of the commons as not being a particular thing, but okay, here's how to explain. The undercommons is the idea that rather than saying now is the time to organize or now is the time to do something politically, to realize that there's always already things happening. There's already forms of political organization, forms of, let's say, almost a bit called implicit critiques of the world, existing world, already circulating. So to give you an example that, um, that, that, that Fred Moten used in, in, a, in a few months ago um, in an interview, he, he started and I'm talking about barbecues. He says, you know, a lot of people think of barbecues as, you know, just being, you know, a nice thing that happens on a Saturday in a park, right? He says, well, barbecues are actually really socially interesting, rich situations where if you look at a barbecue, you have, you know, the person who knows how to prepare the meat, the person who knows how to organize transport, the person who, who gets together the kid, the games for the kids, the person who gets together the drinks for the aunties. But there's so many things that are always already happening in, in organizing. It was something that might, might seem like a very, you know, a very, you know, like not complicated situation. So an art of the undercommons would be, what for thinking about what forms of aesthetic production, what forms of ideas, images, forms of of art are are already being circulated in in the present. So rather than saying, well, now is because when you say now is the time to do this, whether it's now is the time to really make political art or now is the time to really organize, that tends to erase everything that was there already. So the art of the the idea of the art, 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 art of the art is trying to sort of more tease out what's already happening, or as I suppose as Marvin Gaye would say, what's going on, and, 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 and to learn from the value and the richness of that rather than to say, oh, well, now we need to really do something. So where, where do you go next after the book? Obviously, I'm, I'm sort of conscious of the, you know, the broader question that confronts academics when they finish a, a research project or a book, which is, yeah, that's very interesting. What are you going to do next? <laughs> which seems a bit you know, kind of demanding and dismissive, but I'm, I'm interested to know um how you kind of take forward a book like this is it you know kind of in terms of more sort of um organizing um more uh i guess movement practices or are you thinking in terms of you know having settled accounts with with this um question of autonomism in the avant-garde and, and moving on to something else well currently what i'm what i'm working on is um I, for the past, well, pretty much right after I, I finished the book, I, I went on right to working on them. I'm organizing an exhibition uh, of the work of uh, a G. Voucher, who is perhaps best known for being the um, the designer for the for the anarchist punk band Crass. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I, I worked with a few other people um, first to get her um, nominated for an honorary doctorate from the University of Essex, and then to convince uh, First Sight, the, the the big local museum in Colchester, to put together a sort of um, a, a retrospective of her work 
and that's going to open in November. Um, so, that, so that's looking at sort of the past 50 years of her work in terms of painting, collage, design, installation work, print, video, and film. Um, that wasn't something that necessarily comes comes out of um, of the book, but it does cover, let's say, similar sort of concerns in trying to learn from, let's say, a kind of heritage of or an inheritance of sort of political art and trying to expand how people understand it and what it could mean. And I think it's really, it's really interesting that, that, that that's happening. Um, it, it's, it's opening um, uh, in November in Colchester. And that's really interesting because um, this this fall is being celebrated as you know the 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 40th anniversary of punk, which is kind of funny if you look at at, at punk London. This is these series of events which are sort of backed by the Queen and the Mayor and the, and the Lottery, who are perhaps the sort of least punk um, people in the world. <laughs> um, so 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 it's interesting. So it's a similar sort of question in trying to say, well, okay. <sighs> What was the? If you start with sort of what was the aesthetic political importance of punk in the seventies? What can we learn from it today? How would it be reworked or sort of recomposed in the present? That sort of thing. So that, that, that's what I've been working on at present. Um, I have to I have to admit that, 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 that since that's taken up so much time with that, I'm not sure where I'm going after that. Um, but we'll see. Um, I suspect we'll probably just think more about questions of sort of cultural labor, and that I think. I'm quite interested in ways in which, let's say, forms of artistic and cultural production create a sort of a kind of psychological contract where you're much more subjectively involved in your work and therefore find it harder to organize it around it in terms of labor or politics. Um, so things about like the difficulty of going on on art strike when when your work is your own sub, 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 subjectivity. So I'll probably work, work more on that next. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Stephen Shukaitis from the University of Essex about his new book, Composition of Movements to Come.